Amen. Amen. Thank you, Guillermo. I hope you'll be praying for David. He's on our prayer list and uh, let him know uh, that you're praying for him. There's two handouts tonight. One is a prayer sheet and here in about uh, 40 minutes or so, we'll go over this. And if you didn't get one, Matt's handing those out. Also is a another uh, front and back of a sheet here and uh, you'll want to have one of these as well. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is, uh, you can call it a new members class if you want. Uh, what, it, what it really is, um, is sort of like pizza with the pastor without the pizza. Uh, if you never heard about pizza with the pastor, some of these pastors, they have people over. We should do this, by the way, have people over and, and have pizza and just get a chance to ask questions. So if you have questions about Elmira Baptist Church, you have questions about me, you have questions about why I said something I did um, that is a that is appropriate for a group setting, please feel free, lift a hand, ask the question. Now, I, I understand that sometimes, and if you're at home, you'll have to excuse me, I'm going to be up and down here tonight. I understand sometimes people are a little bit intimidated because I'll ask a question that's not a rhetorical question, and then I'll just pause, and I'll wait for an answer. Sometimes people are like, oh, you, yeah, I do want you to answer. And the reason I do is because it helps you to think through things. Um, and there's a place for just straight lecture. And on Sunday mornings, we rarely take questions and, and I rarely ask questions. But on these Wednesday nights, I want to take advantage of the smaller group. If we could get everyone in around a table, we do it. We're not going to, but uh, think of it more like a seminar than a lecture. It's a chance to ask some questions, to make some comments. And Guillermo's not the only one who's allowed to ask questions. So feel free. If uh, there's something on your mind, I'm not going to take questions this week uh, up just from the floor, but in future weeks, we're going to start with just a, hey, does anyone have a question? And uh, write it down. Ask, ask your question. Turning your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we, the men, looked at these verses last week. So it's going to be a little bit of review for the men. Catch the ladies up. And then we're going to look at these 10 distinctives. And uh, by the way, uh, these 10 distinctives were something that Pastor Harder left with me when, um, when I first came to Elmira Baptist Church. And I was so grateful to know what his heart for Elmira Baptist Church is. And I want to start with this because I want you to see that there's continuity. And we can talk about why that's important if, if that is interesting to you. But I want you to see there's continuity. A church should not change from night to day when there's a new pastor. Because God's word doesn't change. Now, I'm a different person. I, I don't have the same personality as Pastor Harder. And so we do things differently. I, I understand that. And I, I'm, I'm never going to be him. I, I can try as hard as I want and I, I will never measure up. But what I do want you to understand is that the, the Bible truth is Bible truth. And so if the Lord were, something were to happen to me and the Lord were to bring another pastor here, I would hope that you uh, men of the church would share this document with him and say, hey, this is what's important to us. And because this is important to us, that's why we're starting here. And again, if you have questions or you think, boy, pastor, I think there's something that should be more important. Let's talk about that uh, in the weeks to come. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's start with verse 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that body being many or one body, so also is Christ. Now, I wish we could look at the whole passage. For the sake of time, I want you to skip down to verse 18. It says, but now hath God, this is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, 
as it hath pleased him. And then verse 27, now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now, who knows from other scripture, what is uh, the body of Christ? The church. So when we talk about the body of Christ, we're talking about our place in the church. And I want you to notice um, some important principles we draw from these verses, from this chapter. And the first one is, a church is not a building. A church is not an organization. A church isn't a group of men or a group of people, Christians, who handle everything. A church is us. We are Elmira Baptist Church. So if this building burns down tonight, we're still Elmira Baptist Church. When we move into the new building, we are still Elmira Baptist Church. People will come and go from the church. God moves people. And, and how do I know that? Because he's placed every one of them in the body, verse 18, as it has pleased him. So people will come and go, but the church, which is us, will stay functionally will stay the same. Number one, a church is Christians. Number two, let me just point out that God expects every Christian to be a member of the body, to be a member of the church. If you have, those of you that uh, enjoy biology, if you have a single cell, by the way, there are single celled organisms, aren't there? But no person is a single cell. No human being is a single cell. No human being is even one organ. You know, you take somebody's heart out of them, that heart is not them. That heart is only a part of their, their entire body. And as a Christian, when I am separated from all other Christians, that's a really hard place to be at. Sometimes you, we're out, we're meeting people, and they'll say to me, well, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? Oh, I worship in my living room. You can worship God in your living room. In fact, I often worship God in, in my living room in the mornings when I have my time with God. I, I happen to do that in the living room. But I need you the church and you need and you need a church to be a part of every i'm absolutely convinced that god expects every christian to be a member of a church here's a third uh, lesson from this god is the one who places us in our church and god is the one who prepares us for the the the, the role that we will play now we don't have time to look at the whole chapter like i said but remember his illustration there that not just because you're not the eye doesn't mean you're not a part of the body just because you're not the hand doesn't mean you're not a part of the body. Just because you're not the foot. Each one of us has a different part to play in Elmira Baptist Church. And God is the one who prepares us by life experience, by the people around us, by other churches we might have been a part of, to play our play, to, to have our part. I was going to say play our role, but we're not role playing. To do our part and have our minister here at Elmira Baptist Church. Every Member of the church is important. There are no unimportant members of the church. So these are some lessons we, we learned from this chapter. And uh, again, if that sparks some thought, write down your question. And either we'll take it at the end tonight or we'll pick it up uh, next, next week. So with that in mind, what kind of church do we want to be? Again, Elmira Baptist Church is us. It's the people. It's not the building. So what kind of church do we want to be? And that's where this sheet comes in. And uh, you can refer to it. But before we get to um, um, the, the sheet itself, let me just uh, mention, I think the reason Pastor, I never asked Pastor Harder why he wrote the sheet, but I think one of the reasons he did it is because many of you come, we, we all come from varied church backgrounds. Some of you are from, this is your first church. You've never been in another church. Some of you may have been from another independent Baptist church. 
And I'll be candid. I, I'm, sometimes I hesitate to say I'm an independent Baptist because all that means is we're very different. I mean, the key word in independent Baptist is independent, not even Baptist. So I've met independent Baptists that I'm not real comfortable associating with. They're so different. So uh, that, that isn't necessarily a, a helpful label. Um, and, and some of you uh, may have come from a church. Um, I, I, I use this term endearingly, so please, I'm not, it's not a pejorative, but I, uh, I, I borrowed it from Jesse. You can blame Jesse. He calls them big box churches, right? Um, those of you that grew up uh, in the 60s and 70s remember when there used to be little hardware stores, right? And usually the owner of that hardware store worked in his own hardware store. And he knew where everything was. And you walk into the hardware store and you'd say, I need a, you know, a a certain type of nail or a nut and bolt or whatever. And he would know where it was. And he'd take you right to it and he'd help you find what you needed. Now, I don't know if you've walked into Home Depot or Lowe's recently and said, I need a certain nut or bolt. They'll say, yeah, it's over there. I've even asked for specific help with an item. And they'll say, well, I I don't work this area. Can you help help me find the person who works this area? Sure. And then they disappear. It's just a different, different idea. Now you can find, and previously in a hardware store, you may not find everything you wanted, but he knew what he had. And now you have these big box hardware stores. They have all kinds of stuff, but they don't actually know what they have. I sort of see it the same way. Some of you may come from a church that has a lot of different programs. I mean, they've got a program for toddlers and they've got a program for infants and then toddlers and then preschool. And I'm thinking... That's about six people at our church. And then they got a program for first graders and second graders. And if the Lord were to, to give us that many children, praise the Lord, we'd, we'd find a way to make it work. I'm not saying that that's evil. It's just not who we are. So who are we? What is it that makes our church distinctive? And that's what this sheet here is about. Um, I like that he says right there in that first paragraph, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the author and finisher of our faith and endeavor that in all things he might have the preeminence. He's quoting from Colossians 1.18. Our goal here, and please always remember this, our goal here is not to be famous. Our goal isn't to be a great church. Our goal is to exalt Jesus Christ. Now we want to do things with excellence. Uh, We want to do things with excellence, but our goal in doing things with excellence is to exalt Jesus Christ. We want to be theologically accurate and correct in our beliefs. The goal is not so we're right. The goal is to exalt Jesus Christ. So let's keep that in mind. Whenever you come to me with a problem here at the church, one of the things that we need to work through is how does Jesus Christ get exalted in this? How does he have the preeminence? And then he mentions that our concern is to walk even as he walked. We want to follow in uh, Jesus' footsteps. So keep that in mind. Now, what I'd like to do is actually start on the back page. Again, I didn't write this, but I'm going to borrow it here. And number 10, look at number 10 on the back page there. Number 10 says this, we believe that all these distinctives must be applied in love or it profits us nothing. It's very important that we continue to be a loving church. I like, I like that about our church. Um, sometimes, uh, often, as, as we are following up with people, often they'll, they'll have some uh, reason that they're not comfortable at our church. You know, there's too many people in too small of an area, or uh, it's a too small of a church, or we don't like your music, or sometimes they've even told me I don't like your preaching. And that, that's, all, that's, that's fine. I'm not bothered. But I've almost always had people say, 
you are the friendliest church we've been in. We want to keep that. We want to be friendly. We want to, we want to love people. We want to love God, obviously. We want to love our fellow members, but we want to love the stranger, strange people that come into our church. Not everyone is just like us. They may have a different background or different way of presenting themselves. And we need to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So when, as we go through these distinctives, we're not trying to you know, put ourselves on a pedestal and show how we're better than other people. We're simply trying to exalt Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand what kind of, uh, of church that, that is. So here's number one. Um, back to the front side. We consider ourselves to be fundamentalists, although we prefer to use the term biblicist. Fundamentalist is a historic ter- a, a term from history. Now about 120 years ago, about the turn of the previous century, there was a group of men and theologians and pastors and, and denominations that were denying that the Bible was the word of God. They said, we got we to gotta modernize this. We know, they said, this is all lies, but they said, we know that those miracles in the Bible, they didn't really happen. And uh, so they began to deny uh, the basic doctrines of the Bible. And there was another group of Christians who said, wait a minute, this is what the Bible is. These are the fundamentals of the faith. And they actually wrote a whole set, four volume set called The Fundamentals. And uh, they were printed by some uh, guys in Southern California, the Lyman brothers. And uh, if, you've never, if you've never got a hand on one of the copies of those books, you ought to at least look through the index and look through the uh, excuse me, table of contents. But there were five things that they said were fundamentals of the faith. And anyone who believes that the Bible is the word of God must believe these five things. And so I listed them there, or Pastor Harder listed them there for us. Number one, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Can you quote 2 Timothy 3.16 with me? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's that's what we believe. That's what the Bible is. It's, It's verbally inspired means each word is inspired and plenary inspired means the whole thing is inspired. It's not like Everything but Jude is inspired. No, no, no. The whole thing is inspired. And that is a fundamental of the faith. If you don't believe that, you're not going to be comfortable at our church. Now, some of you remember about a year ago now, we went through five words, inspiration, preservation, canonization, translation, and illumination. And I'm not going to go through those again tonight, but that's sort of a fuller understanding of what we believe about the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Here's number two. We believe in the supernatural virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And because he was, not because, he was born of a virgin because he was divine. His father is God the father. That's how that works. Now, um, I I know some of you probably scratching your head saying, you mean there's people that deny the virgin birth? Oh yeah, there's a lot of people. There's even people that say, I'm a Christian. They'll even tell you, you know, I believe the historic doctrines of the faith. And then they'll tell you, but I don't really believe Jesus was born of a virgin because we know that children aren't born of virgins. They're denying what the Bible clearly teaches. We believe that Jesus was God. Not, he, he wasn't God-like. He didn't become God. There's even a chorus that I caught myself singing one time. I don't remember where I picked it up about Jesus becoming God. Jesus, didn't, Jesus never became God. Jesus was always God. 
And that's what we believe. That's another fundamental of the faith. I've given you some verses there. I'll let you look those up on your own. Here's number three. Fundamental of the faith, we believe in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ for all sinners. Um, some have rejected that Jesus Christ needed to die for our sins. They'll say, well, he died. You know, he's a good example. You hear that a lot from people who are not Christians. Well, he's a good example to us. Uh, he was a, um, they'll say he was persecuted by the Romans. Well, I, I have no doubt that there is some persecution involved, but Jesus died because we are sinners. And we needed a savior. And it was important that his blood was shed because the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So if we, he would have just been smothered, and I, forgive me, it's blasphemous to even go here, I suppose, but if he would have just been smothered, that would not have been the right sacrifice for our sins. It required the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth one is the bodily resurrection of um, Jesus Christ. We don't just believe that his spirit was revived or that the love that was in Jesus' life continues on into Christians of the present day and that's what his resurrection is. We believe that he came back bodily. Now his body was different than before he died because he could, remember, pass through walls. They were in a locked room and there's Jesus. But he still did things like he ate, didn't he? And he talked and he said, you can touch me and they would put their fingers in, in his wounds. So he had a body. It wasn't exactly like these bodies. It was an immortal body, but it was a body. And uh, we believe in his bodily resurrection. And here's the fifth one, the visible bodily return of Jesus Christ from heaven. We believe in that. Now, our church also, if I can be a little bit more clear about that last point, um, not all fundamentalists believe this, but we believe that his bodily return has two aspects. The first is the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And the second is the pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ. So just real briefly is, um, before the seven-year period called the tribulation, Jesus will not come back and have his feet touch the earth. No, he will come back and meet us in the clouds. We call that the rapture. And we will spend those, uh, that, those seven years with him, and then we'll return. He'll be riding a white horse. And those who are his saints will be dressed in white and will return and he'll come back at the end of that seven years and, and conquer his enemies and then he will reign. Jesus will reign for 1,000 years before we get into the new Jerusalem and the new, and the new heavens and the new earth. So that's our uh, eschatology, if you will. Now, not all fundamentalists are pre-tribulational and pre-millennial, but they all believe that Jesus will return bodily that he's actually coming again. And the reason is, is because that's what the Bible teaches. So if you come from a background where you've heard people deny one or more of these, the reason they're denying them, most likely, my experience is because they, they don't believe in miracles. They're trying to make everything fit within the physics as human beings understand physics. But remember, our God is greater than his creation. He's not bound by the same laws that you and I are bound by. And so he can do miracles. And in fact, that's one of the ways that Jesus authenticated his ministry. So that's all under number one. Here's number two. We are an independent local church. We don't have any uh, ties to a, a denomination. Now, many years ago when this church was founded, they chose to associate with the General Association of Regular Baptists, and our name is still on a list of churches that are associated with the General Association of Regular Baptists. 
And uh, I, I've talked to the local representative. I've the deacons and I have talked about this. I, I don't have any reason to disassociate. If that bothers you, you let me know. But here's what they don't do. When Pastor Harder was looking uh, for a replacement, he didn't have to go to them and get permission. They don't have any, they don't own our buildings. Some denominations own buildings, by the way. Um, United Methodists are, are, are like this. And so if you're in a Methodist church and you say, I don't like the way the denomination is going, we're just going to start our own, you know, we're just going to leave the denomination. Sometimes they'll say, sure, you can leave the denomination. Just leave the keys with us on your way out the door. Because they own the buildings. That's not true here. Um, we don't have any denominational ties like that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about creeds, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over that uh, for now. Now, there are some weaknesses to this, by the way, to being an independent church that doesn't have any denominational ties. There's no accountability for your pastor unless you provide accountability. Nobody's going to come in and say to me, why are you preaching that? Nobody's going to come to me and say, why are you doing that? Unless you, man of the church, take responsibility for the church God gave you and say, hey, there's something wrong with this. Now, the Bible does say rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. The point is, is don't, don't just jump at the pastor and say, hey, you're wrong about this. Make sure you know your facts. But if I'm doing something that's wrong or I'm preaching something that's wrong, you need to take responsibility to correct it because nobody else is going to come from the outside and make those corrections. So keep that in mind. That's, that's one of the weaknesses. And you know what it also means? We don't really have resources where we can go to the larger denomination and say, hey, we're building a building. Can you help us? We don't have those resources. But we've seen God provide without denominational resources. And I'm confident that this is where God wants Elmira Baptist Church to be. Number three, again, if you have questions, just write them down tonight. We'll come back and, and take questions either at the end or um, next week. We believe that God instituted marriage as a relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And every Christian's marriage is a picture to the world of the relationship between Christ and his church. Therefore, in our marriages, we seek the grace of God to enable husbands to love their wives unconditionally and for wives to submit to their husbands joyfully. I, I love how he wrote that. I just, that he just encapsulated that so well. We seek the grace of God. As a husband, I need God's grace to love my wife. And I tell you what, my wife needs a lot of God's grace to submit joyfully to me. No, seriously, that, that's not true. She needs God's grace, just not as much as I probably need God's grace to be a good husband. Yeah, I think I want to say it that way, yeah. We need God's grace in our marriages. If you think you can do it without God, you can't. But all of our marriages, God says in Ephesians, represent the relationship between Christ and his church. And so when there's friction and there's, um, there's uh, uh, harsh words and there's um, evil outside to other people, there's evil speaking about our marriage, then that reflects poorly on the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And again, what is our goal here? That in all things, Jesus might have the preeminence. We want to exalt him. So in our marriages, we want him to be exalted. We want to show that relationship between Christ and his church. Um, if you have questions about marriage, again, just write those down. We'll come back. We'll probably come back to that topic over the next few weeks. As you know, our society is devalue, devaluing marriage. How do we know this? Because a lot of people just live together. 
We don't need to get, they'll say, we don't need a piece of paper to show our commitment for each other. We, we don't need to get married. We love each other. And that shows me they don't understand God's purposes in marriage. They don't understand how marriage works. So um, they're devaluing marriage. Number four, here's the fourth one. We are a Baptist church. Sometimes people have asked me, why do you uh, call yourself a Baptist? Why don't you just say, you know, Elmira Community Church or, you know, Elmira Church or some other name without a, without a denominational label? And that's the reason we have a denominational label is for the same reason that you keep the labels on your soup cans, right? I remember one time I wanted to do an illustration and I, had a, I needed a can without a label. So I ripped the label off one of my soup cans and I took it, did the illustration, and then I put it back in the cabinet and I didn't replace the label. And then my wife comes to me and she says, what's in this can? And it had been a week or two and I thought, I, I don't remember. <laughs> now we had to open it up to find out what was in it. So let's imagine a church, and again, I'm not trying to speak ill of other churches, but let's imagine a church. We have one here in town. It's called the Father's House. What, is, what are the Father's House's basic beliefs? We have no idea. Are they Baptist? Maybe. Are they Presbyterian? Possibly. Are they Methodist? Maybe they're an eclectic mix of all of it. That's possible too. The only way you'll know is if you attend for a while. Just like the only way you'll know what it's in a soup can without a label is by opening up the soup can. Well, I think it's just fair if people understand that I'm a Baptist by conviction. I believe that the Baptist doctrines, and we'll go over them here quickly, best uh, explain, or be, not best, they, they line up, they align with what the Bible teaches. So I'm a Baptist. Now, do I hate Presbyterians? No. I, they're wrong, but they'll, they'll figure that out when they get to heaven, right? They'll, they'll find out. I, I, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a Baptist. And here's what we mean by Baptist. The first one is a born Born-again membership, um, only those who personally profess faith in Christ can be a member of Elmira Baptist Church. Now, in some churches, you become a member when you're baptized as an infant. So you have a child, I don't know, a couple months old maybe, and they baptize that guy or that girl, and now he's a member of the church. Is that baby a Christian? No. The, the baby cannot be a Christian. And yet they're saying that's a member of their church. Um, we, we don't believe in that. We believe in a born, that this church, Elmira Baptist Church, is made up of people who are already Christians. You're born again. Here's the second thing that Baptists believe. Baptists believe in the authority of the scriptures. That is, there is no creed. There's no denominational document that we follow in addition to the Bible. So when we consider, okay, what does God have for our church? We, we go directly to the Bible. We don't go to a denominational document and say, well, what does the denominational document say? We don't go to a creed, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed and say, what do they say? No, but I'm not against the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I think they, they're, 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 pretty, they're accurate. They're biblically accurate. But that's not where we go. We go right to the Word of God. Now, if you're not familiar with denominations, um, let me just say that over the last couple of years, several of them have gone back to their denominational documents and they've been trying to redefine what marriage is. So the marriage could be between two men or it could be between two women. And I think to myself, could you imagine being in a denomination like that? They're even having that discussion. What would that look like? Well, we don't, we don't have that uh, issue here because our authority is the scriptures. Here's the third one. 
that was a born again membership, authority of the scriptures, the priesthood of the believers. First Peter 2.9 says that we are a royal priesthood. You have direct access to God. Now, I'm glad when you come to me and say, hey, pastor, would you pray for me? I'm glad to pray for you. But guess what? My prayers don't get special attention. How many of you on your cell phone have a few people who have a different level of access than the rest of us? Anyone like that? I I don't, but I understand you can set up your phone that way so that, you know, my dad could get through to me when Lance couldn't, for example, because, well, he's my dad and Lance isn't, right? That's not the way God works. Okay, pastor's prayers first, please. Pastor's prayers. Okay, I get those. Okay, everyone else over here. God doesn't work that way. You have as much access to God as I do, as anybody does. Ladies, you have as much access to God as your husbands do. That's what the Bible teaches. We're a royal priesthood. I've been preparing for Sunday morning. Uh, and Zacharias in uh, Luke chapter one is, is the uh, study we'll be look, uh, the man we'll be looking at on Sunday morning. And he meets the angel in the holy place. And once a day, one priest would be uh, determined by lot to go into that room where the altar of incense was to offer incense. And once a year, the high priest and only the high priest would go further into the holy of holies. And offer blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what? When Jesus died, the temple, the temple, the veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn from the top down to the bottom. To show to us that now as Christians, we don't go through the priest, we go directly to God. We are priests. So we believe in that, the priesthood of the believers. Uh, there's two offices, uh, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The two offices are the elder pastor and the deacon. And we, we do have uh, trustees at this church, but we also have Sunday school teachers. We have a lot of positions. But the two that are official positions that we draw right from Scripture is the pastor, uh, which is another word for the elder, and the deacon. Here's the next one, um, separation of church and state, separation of church and state. Some of you may already know this, but John Leland was the Baptist pastor who, uh, I would say, use the word, confronted James Madison about the need for an amendment that separated church from state and, and state from church. There were, when the Constitution of the United States was signed, and went into effect in the 1780s, there were state churches in the individual states. That is, there were some states that would say, this is the state church, and they were collecting tax money from their people and giving it to those churches to pay their their clergy. And uh, James Madison wasn't particularly convinced that that was a problem. But James, uh, John Leland is the, is the Baptist preacher's name who met him and said, hey, listen, we've got a problem here. We don't think the federal government or the state government ought to be paying the pastor salaries. I think the church should do that. By the way, in, in, in Europe, they still have this tax. Um, several countries still have a tax. You, you, you pay your taxes to the federal government, to the big government, and then they pay different uh, clergy members for their services. Um, we are, as Baptists, we believe in the separation of church and state. Now, how does that work out for us? Well, one of the ways it worked out is, as some of you remember, during the uh, pandemic, during the COVID pandemic, 
the government was, was guaranteeing loans that uh, businesses and organizations could take, and they would be forgiven if the loans met certain conditions. During that time, we made the conscious decision not to take any money or take any loans guaranteed by the government. Why? Because we believed God could provide our needs. And he did, didn't he? Amen. He did. We, we, you were faithful to give and, and the Lord provided all our needs. And, and we don't want the government's money. We don't. I think this is one of the mistakes that churches are beginning to make. We think, well, you know, if the government's offering it, we should just take it. Well, if we believe in the separation of church and state, we don't want the government's money. Because money always comes with strings attached. Believe me, money always comes with strings attached. Now, if you want to take government largest, great, you do that. I'm not saying an individual Christian shouldn't take help from the government. But churches, if we believe, and we do, in the separation of church and state, then we should not take the government's money. Now, I, I, I want to say clearly, I believe that you should be informed and vote. Because we live in a republic, and that is one of the benefits that we have. We get a chance to elect certain people who then make our laws. So please be involved in government. Don't expect government to bail our church out. That's what I'm saying. And don't expect any one church. We don't want the, we don't want the Mormon church, for example, to pick who our leaders are, do we? We don't want the Catholic church to pick who our leaders are. So we don't want to pick who the leaders are. The Baptist church doesn't want to pick who the leaders are. Um, so that's the separation of church and state. Let's move on. I think I can get, I think I can get through this tonight. Um, two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then the security of the believer. Let me just say it this way. If our salvation depended on us, we would lose it. If my salvation depended on me, somehow living up to something from the moment that I profess faith in Christ until the moment of death, I would lose it along the way. My salvation never depended on me. It didn't depend on me at the moment of my salvation, and it doesn't depend on me day by day. Let me show you one, one passage to, to this effect. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. And uh, then we'll move on to number five there. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Jesus was teaching and he said this, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Think of what those two things are saying. I give unto them eternal life. When does eternal life end? Never. So if he gave me eternal life 40 years ago, that's not an exact number, but just 40 years ago, and then somewhere 20 years ago I lost it, would it have been eternal? No, it wouldn't be eternal. It'd have an end point. So I give unto them eternal life. It has to be that at that moment of salvation, that life is eternal. It'll never end. And look what he says secondly, and they shall never perish. He doesn't say they shall never perish. Well, unless they do something really dramatically bad. I had a, uh, an acquaintance of mine when I was in high school who, who believed he could lose his salvation. And I said, well, specifically, what would you have to do? Well, he said, well, like murder. Okay, murder is bad. Don't murder anybody. But it doesn't say they shall never perish unless they murder somebody. It doesn't say that. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, he goes on to say, my father, this is verse 29, which is, 
which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So you can see from these verses that your salvation, my salvation doesn't depend on me. It depends on Jesus Christ and God the Father. And they are faithful. God is faithful. So yes, I, I'm not encouraged. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not encouraging you to sin. The Bible says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We don't want to continue in sin. Your salvation doesn't depend on you. Maintaining some standard between now and death. And I'm sure glad it doesn't. So that's the security of the believer. These are some Baptist doctrines. Any, any, any church that calls themselves Baptist ought to adhere to these doctrines. Now, sometimes you'll meet somebody and they don't believe in these things. And I don't know why they call themselves Baptist. I think they confuse us. But um, that, that's what the uh, Baptist distinctives are. Here's number five. Uh, Elmira Baptist Church is evangelistic. We believe that fulfilling the Great Commission of Matthew 18, 19 through 20 is a primary goal. It's an important goal. And notice what it tells us to do. Go. So evangelism, and I've said this to you before, evangelism is not bringing people here, although we can do that. Evangelism isn't only bringing people here, although we can do that. Evangelism is us going out to where they're at. Now, it, it, it is an organized activity. We go on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock. Most Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock, there's a group of us that go out. But let me encourage you, you ought to be evangelizing every day. Not only during that little window on Saturday morning. And sometimes I think that little window on Saturday morning when we go out can actually become a hindrance to, to genuine evangelism because they say, well, I went out door knocking on Saturday morning. That's good. You should. That's fine, but that is not the only thing we do. At work, in your neighborhood, um, you got kids on a sports team, here are all opportunities for you to be an evangelist and to give out the gospel. Um, and it mentions those things there as well as support for missions. Let's go on to number six, and I'm just going to read this one to you, and then um, we're going to stop there. And again, if you have questions, we're going to open up next week with questions. So write those down and we'll uh, start with this. We believe foreknowledge and election are not inconsistent with free agency, but are founded upon free agency. The elect were chosen to eternal life because God foresaw that in intended exercise of their freedom, they would repent and embrace the gospel. This view um, of the subject affords no ground for presumption on one hand, well, I must be saved because God elected me, nor for despair on the other, which would be a person who says, well, I can't be saved because God didn't elect me. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll open up this, um, um, uh, this topic next week after we take questions. But let me say it this way, and this is a good way to say it. Let me say it a second way. We believe in God's absolute sovereignty. God can do whatever he wants because he created us. I believe that wholeheartedly. I also believe that God has given us free will because he said, whosoever will may come. Now I have trouble squaring that circle. I'll be frank, but God doesn't call me to understand everything. He calls me to believe what the Bible says. God is sovereign and man has free will. Now, often when I preach, because I'm speaking to human beings, I'm focused on what your response to the truth is because God expects you to respond. That doesn't mean that I don't think God's sovereign. And I know that some people focus on God's sovereignty and then they leave out the 
the human agency side of it and act as if there's nothing we do. We just sort of wander about and then God zaps us and boy, I'm glad God zapped me. I am, but I also know that God in, the, in his word expects me to obey. He says, do these things. And then when I don't do that, what does he do? He says, hey, why did you do this? So uh, we believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in, God, in, in man's free will. And, and although I personally can't square that circle, I know that that's what the Bible teaches. We're going to pick that up. We're going to pick it up with number six next week. There's some more things I want to say about that. And I want to look at first Thessalonians chapter one, verses four through seven. So if you want to get a head start, read first Thessalonians chapter one, verses four through seven, and uh, we'll pick that up, um, pick it up there next week. And if you have other questions, write those down and I'll give you a chance to ask questions next week.